Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Evolution Podcast, where we question what makes our life truly ours. I'm Shereen Jaffer, and I'm very excited to introduce you to some incredible people with fascinating stories. Today, I have Melissa Strawn here with me, who I recently met as part of a women's founder community group. Uh, Melissa, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, it was a, a random chance moment where I saw um, not just an opportunity to be on a podcast, but one that was covering a really important and interesting topic. So I, I'm excited to be here. You know, from what I've read so far, um, you came out of extreme poverty and uh, were a single teenage mother, and you've done an incredible job just building a life that allows you to live the life you want. So so tell me a little bit more about how you grew up and uh, what childhood was like for you. Yeah, so I I think I knew probably like my entire life from as long as I can remember that that something was a little bit different about us as a family. And I think that just came from um, you know, going to other people's houses and seeing that things were run differently. Um, and then just kind of, I always remember this being kind of like a, an air almost of like, oh, well, let's, you know, don't, don't share too much about your personal life and, and, and stuff like that. And I, and I remember thinking like, why? Um, and, but it was really clear that, that, uh, that we were poor. I mean, we did the more, the more obvious things that, that poor people might do, like, you know, wait in line at food banks and we would get adopted for Christmas, um, and stuff like that. Um, but, but also it was just, it was things like not having money to, you know, um, to pay the machines, to, to do laundry and things like that. And I just, you know, I, I think that, um, the reason I bring that up is just that it still affects me to this day, you know, like decades later of just when you grow up in poverty and you grow up knowing that you're different, um, that it really kind of colors the rest of your entire experience in life. So, um, so that was, I, although I will say though, that it's not something I regret. Um, I think that it's shaped my character in many really positive ways. Um, uh, but it was definitely something that, um, yeah, that's something that, that colored the way that my entire life is, um, even today. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I grew up in, um, a one bedroom studio, uh, with my brother and my mom. Uh, we moved from Pakistan to Palo Alto, which is not poor. <laughs> it is an incredibly affluent city. Um, but you know, we weren't, um, and my mom was working three jobs. I don't think I had any friends come over at all. Um, until we moved into a, an apartment. I remember this one moment where my friend was like, well, why can't we go to your house? Like, why are we always hanging out in my house? And I literally just had to make up a lie and say, I can't, I can't remember what I said, but I remember lying a lot as yeah. a kid about my personal situation. Yeah. And I remember that as well of like, you know, you can't have anybody over or we knew if someone was coming over, it's like, oh my God, everybody has to hurry, you know, quickly clean, you know, and, and do all these different things because, um, yeah, it just, things were a little bit different. So, <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how you felt you were treated. So definitely not relating to the, the poverty, um, piece actually. Um, you know, luckily I don't think that came up too much and I I don't think the, the teasing or whatever that I hear from other people's stories. Um, luckily that, that didn't happen too much, but what was very different and unique about my, um, childhood is that I, 
I had a, um, a certain medical condition that caused me to go through puberty at six and a half. And so I, and I have a twin sister who did not have that condition. Um, and so I was teased relentlessly for being overweight, for having a face full of acne at seven years old. Um, and just going through, you know, all the bodily changes that someone would expect to go through in their teens, but as a very young child, um, and having a twin, you know, being compared to the whole time. So I definitely would say that I, I did not grow up with like the, the friendliest, um, you know, social environment around me and, and it was really tough. It was just, it was brutal. And I think that that led to like so many other, um, choices and decisions and experiences in my, in my later life, um, that were really just a way of me trying to heal myself and make up for everything that I went through as a, as a kid. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Um, talk to me a little bit about your high school years. I mean, that's really where a lot of people talk about, you know, the bullying and, you know, unfortunately you had to go through that a lot earlier. Um, but talk to us about your, your high school years and what that really meant for you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because like in high school, I remember, uh, you know, girls in the bathroom trying to, you know, hide their pimples and things like that. And I remember thinking like, oh, God, been there, done that. You know, I'm like, I'm way ahead of you all. I'm already, you know, post uh, that. Um, But, you know, but in high school in particular, and it's interesting that you bring that up just because high school was my period of time where looking back now, uh, when I look at pictures of me when I started high school, I was not overweight at all. I was, you know, a very like normal, you know, normal weight um, for my age. But I had been, you know, overweight and, you know, or obese, you know, for so much of my life by then that I still very much mentally and visually just saw myself as a large person. And so um, as a right when I got into high school, you know, the reason I bring that up is that you know, here I was, you know, I had been a, a, a child that was, you know, already ostracized um, socially. And so I get to at this age where, you know, everybody else is finally catching up and going through puberty and stuff. And I very clearly remember at 13, you know, starting ninth grade and and realizing, oh, so this is like, so I'm going to, I'm now getting attention, positive attention for my body, like from boys, and like after being given all this negative attention for my body for years, that this was very like welcome to me and thinking like, oh, wow, like maybe, you know, maybe there's something they want from me. Right. And so the reason I bring that up is that I think that led to me experimenting with being sexual, like at a very, very young age compared to my peers. And I, I just thought like, well, this is, you know, great. Like, you know, guys want to be around me and stuff like that. Um, but I think that, I think that the reason why that was like dangerous, um, is like when you go through all of these negative things, you know, especially as related to your body and then you start getting positive attention, I think it leads to you do to you doing things that, um, that maybe you wouldn't do if you, 
yeah, if you hadn't experienced such negative attention. So, you know, very, you know, early sexual experiences and stuff like that. And just kind of remember thinking, well, this is expected of me, right? I mean, this is what I should be doing, right? I mean, this is what they want. This is, you know, what I can offer or whatever. And I, and that definitely, you know, obviously played a part in me, you know, getting pregnant at, at age 16, um, which we'll get into, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, I was definitely at a different, I was always at a different place um, growing up um, compared to my peers. So I've always felt older um, than the people that I was growing up with. So how was that for you socially? I mean, you feel like you've been here, you feel like you're, you're growing up faster than those around you. So how did that affect your social relationships? How was it like making friends in that, in that environment? Yeah, well, I, I just remember always feeling lucky that anybody even wanted to be around me. Um, And I think that that is a very dangerous place to be in. When you feel that someone's normal treatment of you is somehow, you know, lucky, you end up being so overly grateful for just normal behavior. I feel like there was a little bit of an uneven... I don't know, give and take, if you will. I feel like I, I always, um, I always wanted to do whatever anybody else wanted me to do because I just felt like, oh, well, at least they want to hang out with me or be friends. Um, and so I didn't really have a high bar set for me, um, in terms of what I was looking for in social relationships. And I think looking back, of course, you know, hindsight is 2020, but, you know, looking back, I think that I had so much potential, um, and so much that I could have, you know, explored, I guess, even academically. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm not, oh, I I told myself, you know, I'm not smart. I'm not pretty. You know, I'm, um, I have to just do whatever anybody else wants. And so I think I missed out on a lot of opportunities to, to flourish academically as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I think, you know, from our earlier brief conversation, it seems like, you know, when you did get pregnant um, at 16, that really was a pivotal moment for you. So Tell me a little bit more about that time in your life. Yeah, well, I remember at the time, you know, to be 100% honest, when I found out I was pregnant, like I wasn't devastated. I was actually, you know, if I'm honest, like I was actually kind of excited. I was like, oh my God, I have this like little baby, you know, this growing human inside of me, like how exciting um, in my own way. And, you know, and then I have a mom who was, who's just a forever optimist and a forever champion and supporter of me. And so even her, I remember her being like, Oh, wow, honey, how sweet and exciting. Um, and then, you know, as I, as I told other people in my network, it was very clear that like, Oh, well, this is not the most desirable, you know, situation for my life right now. And, um, and one, one thing in particular, you know, sticks out as a memory for me is that my mom at the time, had a friend who had really struggled for years to get pregnant. And, and I remember just immediately feeling like, um, almost kind of guilty of like, you know, it was like, it was, it was like so easy for me that it just, you know, I didn't even have to try, you know, kind of thing. And, and so, you know, basically what I was, what I'm referring to is just that, you know, each person had their own reaction to what was going on. You know, some people, you know, had the, had, you know, pressured me to get, you know, have an abortion. Other people were pressuring me to, you know, give the baby up for adoption. Um, and then for myself and, and my mom, we, I just felt like it was like, no, I mean, I, I'm going to make this decision to, 
you know, to either go forward with this life or to not, right? And so I made the decision that if I was going to go forward with it, that I was going to do it, you know, quote unquote, as responsibly as possible, which to me meant, you know, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to, you know, do any drugs, I'm not going to, you know, um, be dangerous or whatever with my behaviors or whatever. Um, And so, you know, that was a time period where for the first time in my in my teenage life, I took care of myself. And I got, I remember like even like developing a very routine habit with flossing, you know, just something as simple as that. Like, I'm going to, you know, floss, I'm going to take care of my teeth and I'm going to remember my little laundry basket and, you know, doing my, you know, clothes. And it's like, I, you know, like I said, for the first time in my life, I was like living what I would call like a responsible life where I was taking care of myself and my and my personal body and, and stuff like that. And so it wasn't, it definitely wasn't all, you know, bad, it wasn't all roses or anything like that. But it was a it was a very clear decision. And, um, you know, I things didn't work out with the the, you know, father and I. Um, and so, you know, I, I was immediately, you know, from four months pregnant on was a single teen mom. Um, but it was, it was difficult, you know, but, but, you know, I was commenting to my husband before this call, even I was saying, you know, in a lot of ways, it it possibly saved me, you know, from a life of like, I don't know, I don't know what my life had in store for me at the time, I knew that I was wasting a lot of potential at the time. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like, yeah, that was a, a pivotal moment, but in a very positive way. And, of course, it's very easy for me to sit here now, you know, when that my son, you know, is 17, and things turned out really well. And he's such a great, amazing kid. And I'm so proud of, of where things went. Um, but you know, it's, it's, there's no guarantee that that's the way that it's going to turn out for everybody. And so I think it really is, you know, a matter of people making whatever decision is best for them personally, and, um, and then being supported in that as much as possible by society. And I'm so happy that you have the support and the awareness to figure it out for yourself. Well, I I feel like there was this just oddly perfect timing of something that that shifted in in the rest of my life that supported this. So I guess to, the short version of the story is that I essentially cut ties with everybody that I had um, been interacting with, you know, up until that point in my life. But here's how that was possible: is that um, you know, my, this is around the time, you know, I, uh, my son was born in 2002. So, you know, this is, you know, the, the start of the, the new century and all that kind of stuff. Um, so welfare to work, the welfare to work program is well underway. Uh, thank you, Bill Clinton. Um, and so what that means for, what that meant for our family was that, you know, we were on, um, section eight, you know, we had section eight housing living in Santa Clara County, um, but because of the welfare to work program, my mom was in a, a unique situation where she got to choose to go to school instead of go to work. And so she um, was going to be transferring to San Jose State University. And so she we needed to find a place to live that was what we call over the hill, you know, which basically means moving from Santa Cruz to, to San Jose. Um, and so, you know, after searching and searching and searching to try and find a house that would accept Section 8, 
because that's not the easiest thing um, to do. Um, we finally found a place that was like deep in the Santa Cruz mountains, like in the woods that was so far removed from any, you know, normal uh, way of life <laughs> um, that, that essentially we were just isolated from everyone. And, you know, even though I was, you know, at 16, I had a driver's license. I, you know, I had a job, I even had a car. So I could have, you know, gone back and visited those friends and, you know, still dabbled in that lifestyle or whatever. But essentially what I'm saying is that there was this, the perfect timing of a physical break that removed me from all of those people that I, that I had partied with and stuff like that. And I feel just so incredibly grateful for the, the timing that, that happened there because then it was like, okay, now I'm physically separated. You know, I'm pregnant. I have this new, you know, deal that's, you know, going on with my body and, and changing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it really gave me the perfect opportunity to have a blank canvas and say, what do I want the rest of my life to look like? I get to actually sit here and paint that picture. And, and yeah, I mean, I guess looking back now, I feel just so incredibly lucky that it all turned out that way. Cause I didn't really have to tell anybody, you know, goodbye. I'm not hanging out with you anymore. Cause I'm changing my life. It was more like, Oh, how shitty my mom moved us all over the hill. I can't see you anymore. You know, and this is before, um, you know, all the lovely social media and stuff like that. I mean, basically <laughs> moving out of the, out of town means you're gone. You're, you're moving out of town. So. And I mean, but to go back and to give you, you know, credit here, um, I, I, I'm glad the timing worked out, but you also made a choice. You made a choice to not take that car and drive back over and continue that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is a powerful choice and a hard choice. And um, again, I meant to so many kids and of course, you know, social media makes this a lot more difficult, but I do mentee so many kids who want to leave, um, toxic friendships. They know they're toxic, but it's a very hard decision that they haven't been able to make yet. Um, so, so kudos because it, it is, it is still very tough. Well, and I think that that's a, I think that, you know, you bring up a good point and, and I think that that's what was what made things just slightly easier for me is that I had an excuse. And, you know, my, my husband has taught me about this concept, like the crab pot mentality, where people are basically pulling one another back down with them. And I think that thinking back, had I said to my friends, like, Hey, I don't want to hang out anymore, because I'm going to lead a, a better life, you know, I think I would have been, you know, ridiculed or demonized or whatever. But essentially, I had this like perfect, convenient excuse of Oh, well, I'm pregnant now and whatever. And so I think, you know, I think the lesson kind of from there, or even just something for us to think about as adults who do mentor younger people now, is how do we show people that we want to change without even needing an excuse? Why is there even an excuse required to be able to tell people that I'm changing my life, things are different? Um, and I think that one of the things that we see even being an adult now, is that people feel threatened when those around them are making positive changes. And suddenly it's now, it's almost like casting judgment on, on their own lives of like, oh, well, you're, you're changing your diet now, or oh, you're going to the gym now, or, oh, so-and-so quit drinking now, or whatever. And it, and it just immediately, like, people start to feel a little threatened by the positive changes that others are making. And so it can be really hard to feel supported and the changes that we make because you know we don't want other people to feel like we're we're prescribing it to them we're just saying this is what's working best for me right now where I'm in my life 
Absolutely. I think, you know, yeah, I wish, I wish, I hope we get to a point where people can simply support each other and be happy for each other and not feel, you know, frankly, what a lot of people do feel is threatened, um, threatened that if you, for some reason, move on with your life and, and do these other things, um, I'll get left behind. I've, I've often found that's one of the reasons why people are not as supportive. Um, I, I agree. I wish we lived in a, in a world where an excuse was not needed. I will say at least what really helped me growing up is I was taught that at the end of the day, you answer to yourself and you answer to, you know, if you feel super guilty about something because you know, you did something that you don't agree with, that you don't align, align with. Well, you feel that people around you won't likely feel that you feel it. Um, and you cause your own body and your mental health damage, uh, for, for feeling those negative emotions. Um, so if you have to answer yourself, um, answer to yourself, then you have to decide what you want to be accountable for. Um, if you are choosing to live a better life, know that you're going to answer to yourself. So it doesn't matter what other people think, um, as long as you align with it. And I know that's, I mean, I felt it, it was so much easier said than done, but that's something my mom always told me is, you know, people that really care about supporting you um, and really care about helping you live your best self, they will, they will, they will stick around. They will support you. They will vouch for you. They will uh, cheer you on. And if they don't, it's cool. They're dealing with something themselves. It's not about you and give them the space they need. Um, and, and don't let them, you know, crowd your space for any reason. And that to me was really important. I think that's actually when I started even recognizing my own space um, and claiming my own space and really cherishing, uh, you know, the environment I surrounded myself uh, with. And frankly, even taking ownership of uh, choosing what environment I chose to be in versus not be in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a that's a good point in that you know we shouldn't need an excuse and and I I really I think that I think it's a very mature way of looking at it in that if people are not supporting you then they're going through things on their own because immediate what immediately what I was thinking in my mind is like oh well, if they're not being supportive well then screw them right and it's like well it, I, you know you could actually choose to look at it just a step beyond that and say, you know what, maybe they're not being supportive because of what they're going through in their own life. So uh, yeah, to, to be totally fair, my mom is, uh, she's a nurse and she's in psychiatry. So I got my own like personal therapy lessons <laughs> growing up. And, um, of course, in hindsight, I'm, I can, you know, see this um, back then, honestly, it came down to my mom, my mom would actually say, Shereen, like we had, um, you know, like every, my mom definitely taught me, you know, lying is not good. And, 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 you know, you need to know between good and bad, as far as morals and ethics, we, we were definitely taught that she did, however, say, if you need to make an excuse, which, you know, if you need to lie about something, if you need to make an excuse to get yourself out of a really shitty situation, do that, do whatever it takes to get yourself out of a shitty situation, because that, like, that, is you doing the right thing for yourself. Um, And I remember she, like, I literally had my friend's mom yell at my mom and saying that she was being a terrible mother and she was teaching me to lie and she was teaching me to, like, you know, lie my way out of things. And now as an adult, I can say, so honestly, that is not what she taught me because she would, again, teach me, um, 
you know, why those things were okay and when they were okay and when they were not okay, right? The boundaries and the limitations. And what she actually taught me was my mental health is important. And um, ideally, I don't, I don't need to have excuses. I don't need to have to lie my way out of things, but there will always be environments where those things are not empowered. And unfortunately you have to do what it takes to get yourself out of a shitty situation. And that is okay. And that's a survival instinct. I think that's just so interesting how, I mean, same, you know, environment growing up here. And it was, you know, I was again, just talking about this similar thing earlier today with my husband and that, Again, it's not like my mom was like, oh, you need to lie or whatever. But my mom taught me early on. And I think this goes back to why I felt like, um, you know, I needed to kind of hide, you know, who we were, you know, being poor or whatever as a kid is that my mom taught me early on that, unfortunately, we live in a society that doesn't always support people in being their open, authentic selves. And unfortunately, if we are just open and outright with um, who we are or, or the things that are going on in our lives, that unfortunately that can oftentimes shut us out in a way that we can never recover from. And especially living in our, a digital age where everything is, you know, documented online and you can't ever really get rid of things that are, that are posted online. It's like, oh my God. So it really makes you question like, well, what am I open and honest about and what do I need to forever keep behind closed doors? And I think that that's, I think that, you know, leads me to something I want to say that, I, and I hope it's okay to bring our conversation in this direction. But one of the things that I've talked about recently with a friend is the ones of us um, that had moms, especially, or parents that were very supportive of these you know, kind of extra things I would say, like about teaching us these life lessons about being honest, the ones of us that had parents or, or role models in our life that were really there for us, no matter what, through thick and thin, no matter what they were there, we turned out okay, we turned out all right. But I, there are friends now looking back who, you know, we went through similar things as teenagers, and they did not have parents who were there for them unconditionally. And they did not have that strong, you know, um, adults, you know, giving them support that are still struggling with those same things now in their 30s or in their 40s. And are you know, we're just kind of left to twist in the wind. And then we, you know, then that leads me to asking, you know, well, what about those people? What do we do in society? And, you know, we obviously can't ensure that every single person grows up with, with, you know, parent with birth parents who are there, you know, through thick and thin. So what do we do with people who don't have those support systems in place? And how do we as a society show up for those people to ensure that they come out of those hard lessons in life um, ahead and being able to move on with their lives as well? I still don't know how to answer that even for myself. Like I, I still ask myself on a regular basis, like, how am I playing a part in being there for people who don't have, you know, those, those strong role model, you know, relationships that I took for granted growing up. You and know. I think about, yeah, even though we grew up in extreme poverty, I had two parents who were essentially there 24 seven. I mean, there was no, we didn't even understand the concept of daycare or whatever, or we would hear the term like latchkey kids. And we think, oh, well, what's that? Like, we almost thought like, uh, oh, well, that, that must be so cool. You know, I mean, we have our parents around all the time because they didn't work, um, you know, and they and they have their own reasons for not for not being able to work, you know, at the time and, and struggles that they were dealing with. And so I, I ask myself even today all the time, like, how can I 
be a part of that, you know, change? Or how can I create a situation where, you know, people who don't have that, um, those relationships that I took for granted, how can I be a part of making it so that they still quote unquote, make it in life or that they get to where they want to go in life. And I think, you know, mentorship is one of the things that's, that's important. You know, I've read that, you know, mentorship can kind of be the, that difference, you know, for people, um, in their lives. But, um, but I think that traditional mentorship doesn't, doesn't reach everyone, um, you know, on both sides of the equation. And so I still think that there's a lot to be, um, you know, learned. And I think that it's, it's going to take some type of a societal shift even just in, you know, forgiveness, right? You know, I loved how you said, you know, that you grew up kind of knowing that, okay, well, mistakes are going to happen, people are going to mess up, you know, and I think that in order to be able to say that to people that mistakes are okay, then you really have to back up that forgiveness is a reality and that people can live beyond the mistakes that they've made. And, you know, I, you know, I read even a, a heartbreaking story today about, um, someone who struggled with addiction issues and different things, and then, you know, turned their whole lives around and was just rejected from professional opportunity after professional opportunity, because you can't go and scrub that record clean. And it's like, oh my gosh. So it's very easy to say like, oh yeah, you know, we can, you know, we make mistakes and stuff like that. But then still as a society, we don't really, you know, put our money where our mouth is, you know, we, we still, you know, we have people um, you know, we were even just talking about how, pe- you know, one of the most common questions that we get asked about our own platform is, oh, well, do you do background checks? And I always try and explain to people that we don't do background checks as a um, as a, almost a form of rebellion against the social system, you know, today, because we have a we live in a society where, um, you know, the, the penals, you know, system is not equal, it's not evenly divided, that some people are um, punished way more, you know, some groups are punished way more than others. And so until we live in a society that's a little bit more equal and just, I'm not going to rely on that society to say, oh, yes, this person is good because they have no background. And this person is bad because they do have a background. Because especially when we're tying that to someone's um, economic uh, opportunities for the future, we are literally damning someone to live by their past mistakes if we don't ever allow them to move beyond, especially economically, because you need money to survive. You need, you know, money to um, create a new, you know, generation of of life for yourself. You know, like you know, you talk about in this podcast, like evolution and evolving, and you know, what about when you evolve personally? But society has not caught up to allow that new revolved self to really break free from our uh, past mistakes. Yeah, I mean, that's super powerful. I think we definitely, um, we don't necessarily allow people, frankly, or empower people to evolve. Someone could be changing and evolving in all the ways that are... um, that are really positive and allows them to frankly be a more productive member of society. Yet we, we, if it's not being done in a way that we agree with as the norm, it's rejected. And I always, I always like to tell people, you know, focus on the outcome. If, if the outcome is, let's say from a societal lens, like we want people to be more productive members of society. We want them to practice, you know, healthy habits and good habits and all these things. Um, we'll focus on the outcome. How are they already doing that? Are they committed to doing that? And it doesn't matter if they got to that point 
from from a way that you don't agree with um, have and done I, more than enough to you know reprogram their mind and uh, make different choices however we 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 don't recognize that we don't see that we don't credit that and we're we're so afraid of giving people um the option and the the opportunity to just redefine themselves and that goes back to why so many people get stuck in vicious cycles and then we wonder why that's happening yeah well and that's i think that's what you're what we're talking about here is like this this uh unequal evolving right you know you can evolve as a person you can evolve your circumstances your mind your thinking your actions everything but if um, those around you are not really prepared to re- to receive that evolution, you know, it's it's we very much like to, you know, sort of label things and, oh, this is bad and this is good. And 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 I think that it's like I think that that society, that that way of thinking, um, I think that that society is ready for change. And I think that it's time for us to evolve as a society on a greater scale rather than just individually, but we have to, in order to do so, we have to recognize that, um, that mistakes and, and evolution and all that kind of stuff is a natural process and that we have to support that and that it's going to look different for each person. And that, and that essentially accepting it does not mean that we're condoning any form of, you know, mistreatment or behavior or, you know, criminal actions or whatever that anybody does, we're certainly not saying like, oh, that's okay, you know, oh, they did their their program, so now everything they did was fine. It's not. It's not about that. It's about saying that okay, uh, you know, um, some steps have been taken to make, I, I guess, make amends, you know, as much as possible. And now let's support the next evolution of this person. And I think that um, it's it's just a very interesting time. Um, you know, to be alive, you know, as, as I'm sure everyone, you know, has said in their own unique, unique uh, perspective in history, but it's a very interesting time to be alive and to watch if, you know, is this going to be that time where we can make that, you know, quantum leap or, or, you know, shift in our evolution as a society and, and make, make this just a little bit easier on the individual going forward. Absolutely. And I could not agree more with that. Let's, let's also go back to, you know, we, your story, how do you go from obviously poverty to now being this successful entrepreneur? What, what does that journey look like for you? What are some things that you encounter? Um, would love some more information there. Yeah. And I think that, I think that my process for becoming an, an entrepreneur, you know, even in itself, just, just showcases, um, some of the, I don't know, deficits, if you'll call it in society. Um, I, I, you know, I, I say all the time that I don't want my legacy in this life to be that I got out of poverty because I married up. You know, I mean, the truth of the matter is, if I'm being really honest, I'm not living in poverty right now at this moment because I married somebody who is a successful, you know, engineer and um, and is not poor. And and the reason why I even bring that up um, is because I I feel that, you know, especially what, you know, being in, in a bunch of, you know, female founder communities and women entrepreneur communities, you see a lot of, um, you know, privilege, privilege by proxy. I don't know if you, if that's even a term that I just, you know, made up, but, um, but essentially in that, 
you know, why are the, the people that are able to be entrepreneurs right now, why are they able to be entrepreneurs? And then who's being left out of that equation? And I very, very strongly believe that um, entrepreneurship should be open to all those who see that as a career path that makes sense for them. But it's not the case. And, um, you know, I mean, I came up with the idea for my, you know, business 11 years ago as a single mom, you know, with my two kids living in the Bay Area, I was living in a one bedroom, you know, cockroach infested apartment in San Jose. And, you know, and I tried and I tried and I tried all these different ways to, you know, bring my idea to life. There was a lot of um, opportunities for, you know, exploitative, you know, treatment. I remember all the, you know, the, the guy, entre uh, the guy engineers at the time, you know, trying to talk me into different, you know, schemes and things like, like that. And I was so desperate and just really wanted somebody to help me bring my idea to life. And so, you know, I basically just kept putting it on hold um, and putting it on hold. And I, you know, I always joke that I had to, you know, marry an engineer just to get someone to code my MVP because I, you know, I, I had a next door neighbor who was an engineer and I asked him to, you know, help you know, code my idea or whatever. And we fell in love and we got married and, and things are, are, you know, are great and stuff in our, in our relationship. So obviously I don't want to leave people thinking that I just married someone for that opportunity, but, but by the same token, you know, I, I look at, um, like I said, who entrepreneurship is available for and who it's not. And I think that the biggest problem I have with, with what I'm talking about here is that certain, um, certain social problems will not be innovated for if we're not including those people in the uh, innovation for those problems. So, you know, to give you just a super quick, you know, idea of what I'm talking about here, I volunteered for the Greater Foundation, um, which was a, a organization that was started by Russell Okun, who, you know, played for the the Seattle Seahawks, you know, when they won the the Super Bowl. I think I'm getting that right. Oh my God, I'm not a, a sports person. But, um, you know, anyway, the, my point is, is that, you know, he started an organization where different, um, you know, underprivileged youth were working on entrepreneurial ideas and I was mentoring them. And all of the kids that were, you know, going up and talking about their innovations, they were innovating for problems that I didn't even know existed. And I thought, you know, that's because, you know, even though I grew up poor, you know, there were still many, many layers of privilege that I had, you know, protecting me. And, um, and that's not the case for everyone. And so I thought, you know, God, if we, um, if we're only choosing people for the pitch competitions and, and the different, you know, things that look like us and talk like us and, and, you know, can, you know, pull it all off, right, the way that we're supposed to in this prescribed way of entrepreneurship, then we're missing out on a massive, like, you know, layer of, of innovation, um, because it's not including the people that are experiencing the very problems that that they're innovating for. So I think that we still have a long way to go. I still I think that my own, um, you know, I like I said, I very much very want uh, very much want to be able to say that, oh, I made it for myself. And I, you know, I, I came up with this idea and I saw it you know, come to life on my own. I think that, you know, we're interconnected and we're always going to rely on other people. And so there's never going to be a, oh, she did it entirely on her own. Um, but I would like the message to be, you know, even though I don't have any daughters, I have five sons, um, but I would like the message to be for other girls or women coming up after me that you can uh, succeed, that entrepreneurship can be available to you 
even if you don't have the financial means or the the exact skills necessary to make that happen. And so that's, you know, one of my missions in my own startup is to make that more accessible and make it more possible to to break into that world of entrepreneurship. So I, I couldn't agree more. I think now I invest a lot. And as an investor, uh, I come across, you know, the founders are people that traditionally struggle to get funding. Um, but now there's more and more funding sources that are out there and ecosystems that are uh, springing up. We're not as far as we need to be, but absolutely for anyone that wants to go into entrepreneurship, that that feels like they don't have the resources, um, they're out there. We definitely need to get more out there. Uh, but absolutely, there there are options. And we need to, as a society, again, going back to needing that societal shift, we need to recognize that in order to solve the problems that truly exist for many people, uh, we need to start empathizing, we need to start listening, we need to start understanding, and, and we need to start making that collective effort. Yeah. And you know, the one other thing I wanted to say real quick is just that I I often say that for profit is the new nonprofit. And I think that that's my, my way of saying essentially that I was raised, you know, especially growing up poor, kind of thinking that, there, that something was wrong with wealth, that if you were a wealthy person, that it's almost like you're a bad person. And I think that that's just a way of, um, I think that that's a, a way of thinking that helps people feel a little bit better about being poor or kind of like, you know, you're demonizing them so that you're not feeling so much, you know, so bad about yourself. Um, but I think that as I've grown, as I've learned, you know, in life um, or evolved, you know, myself, um, I've learned that it, it, there's nothing wrong with wealth. And in fact, if we want to see real change, um, you know, happen, we need to allow for other people to experience, you know, amassing wealth. And I think that in order to, uh, to do that, I think there's nothing wrong with being a for-profit company or for-profit, you know, organization. And so it's not that the only positive change that you can make or that someone can, you know, make is by being a nonprofit or volunteering and stuff like that. Those things, they all have their place and they're great. But essentially, I would like to see, um, you know, I would like to see a future that includes wealth um, being amassed by people who, who wouldn't normally have access to it. And I think that that's, um, I think that we are going to see that. And I think we're going to also start to see that it's totally um, possible to marry uh, these do-gooder ideas, right, of helping people also with making, you know, massive amounts of financial success happen. I, I totally think that's possible. And I really want to be a part of that happening in our lives. I do too. Uh, with that, Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your uh, encouraging words, and just obviously your vision for the world we want to live in. It has been such a pleasure having you here. Tell us, how we can find you, how we can keep uh, updated on your journey and your story. Well, I we are pretty much findable anywhere under my people now. Um, and, you know, Melissa Strawn, I'm, I'm obviously on all the usual channels, um, mypeoplenow.com. Um, but definitely, I also blog at fromwelfaretomillionaire.org. And I, and I love hearing stories of, you know, the quote unquote rags to riches. Um, so I would love for people to reach out there as well. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, Shireen. It's been very uh, enlightening. Thank you.